Welcome to the Uncultural Bias Podcast. I'm your host, Kamara Williams. Uh, listen, this is part two of our Black History Podcast. If you listen to part one, uh, we had Dr. Pearson on there, and we, was, we were dropping knowledge on just the concept of black history, or excuse me, African history, and the importance of it and throughout society. And we moved from uh, African history all the way through the Middle Passage, and we ended up on slavery. So that's where we ended on part one. And so part two, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into slavery and we're going to cover the aspects of it and then the events leading out of slavery or leading out of the bondage of the black Americans. So focusing strictly on black Americans in this program. And with that being said, we're going to continue the discussion with uh, my professor, uh, Dr. Pearson. So Dr. Pearson, are you still here? I'm still here. Okay, so we finished up with part one, and uh, we're here on part two. We, you know, I guess we started to figure out what slavery was about with the economics of it and um, how they started viewing human capital. So now we're in part two, and we I want to delve a little bit deeper into just the thoughts of slavery and um, the peculiar institution of it and how it really, really um, blossomed in America. Like, why did it continue to blossom in America, and but it started to lose f- favor in Europe? Well, <clears throat> broadly, again, speaking, is that most of our understanding should be around the fact that we don't think of plantations in Europe. Right? mainly because of climate and weather. Mm-hmm. If uh, Europe had been Northern Africa, then I'm sure you would see a lot more of the transportation of that type of labor mm-hmm. uh, in Europe. But much like there wasn't a lot of slavery in Massachusetts and Maine, right? It's why it's because of climate, not because the people there are nicer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, to that end, uh, the lower South that we're familiar with and now what we call the United States always was going to attract a larger slave population than New York, middle, uh, the middle Atlantic. Right. So a lot of it has to do with, again, geography and understanding climate. People sometimes want to attribute, well, the Canadians, you know, they didn't have uh, legal slavery, so they must be, you know, nicer people. Uh, no, they're in Canada. Right. That's, that's more the issue yeah, because Canadians are English people and England is the one that sent the ships to Africa to bring them to all their different colonies in the Commonwealth. Mm. So um, we, we try to come up with justifications after the fact instead of sort of looking at things logically. Okay. Now, with slavery, I've always thought that slavery hasn't really been truly depicted in the American conversation. I know we have an, we have an idea of how bad it was, but um, it's funny. I was, uh, that movie Django came out, right? Like a few years ago, like five, six years ago. Right. And I remember the conversation surrounding it was like, Oh, well, it's just, you know, it's really, really, it, it was a crazy movie. And they thought to themselves, like, oh, how real real were, you know, 
these um, events. You know, it was, it was centered around, uh, I guess, these black slaves killing each other. They call them Mandingo matches. And I, I chuckled at some of the writings I saw at the time. They're like questioning the reality of it. And they were like, oh, here it comes, you know, Quentin Tarantino with his fictionalized version of history. And I don't know if Quentin Tarantino actually meant to do that or stumbled upon it, or it was actually very, you know, true. I mean, he found, I mean, if he really, you know, mistakenly hit upon a fact, but those things actually did happen. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, prob- probably rarely, but yeah, they, they, there certainly are, is, is are ev- or there is evidence that some, some of that did take place. Yeah. Right. But the, big, the bigger conversation I, I wanted to get into is that, um, how they literally looked at black bodies as just the disposable things for human interest. And to the point where a lot of time they would operate on modern science, um, they would operate, these doctors were like, I, I want to know what the human brain's like. So let me go ahead and crack open the skull of a slave. I want to know what the, <laughs> the, the internals of the human body looks like. Um, so I'm going to operate on them you know, because I want to know what's going on. So they cut them open. No anesthesia, no nothing. They would just string them up and cut them open and operate on them, right? Um, and so it was, they would sell human body parts for good luck. You know, it, it was it, it was a despicable, despicable thing that we don't understand just how bad it really, really was. And I don't think... Um, I don't know if there's really been a film that's really described the atrocities of which how bad it was. Because if it was, if we understood the the level of you know debasement in which you know slaves were treated, you know from um, sexually to you know um, to uh, masochism, uh, I don't think there would be a. a, a there would be a person who would say, oh, okay, well, that wasn't a big deal, right? No, it was uh, It was a very much a big deal because it played into the psychology of how they viewed black bodies, even to this day. It was such a de- devalued concept. And I hear a lot of people say, I, ne- I never owned slaves. I never, I didn't care about, you know, my family never owned slaves and I was never into slavery and da-da-da. But, yeah, but you may not have owned slaves, but you understand the concept of the human inhumanity of how they view black people worked itself into yep. the fabric of the American consciousness. Okay. Um, well, you're you're moving me off of my comfort zone, history, <laughs> and and asking me to delve into psychology, sociology. Well, we don't have right? to, and, and even spiritualism to some extent. But you know, we'll we'll give it a shot here. But I wanted to at least qualify uh, that this is not in my my strength. We don't but have to. We don't to have to start do with. We don't need to. Yeah. We don't have to do that. Prof. Wasn't it? No, because I think it's what more people come at this topic like. So it's not that I've never done it. I just want to qualify that it's not true history when you're trying to explain feelings or thoughts or motivation well let's let's marry right. the two let's let's try, see if we can fix let's talk about his, the historical basis of it right yeah. and if we want to get into well, the, when you, theological yeah. we can well, do that as well you brought up these, this idea of you know of fights or contests 
correct? Okay. Yeah. So quick comparison first rather than just dealing with that is that we know about Rome and Gladiator and these ex- exhibitions of, of um, strength and killing and thumbs up and thumbs down. And that seems to be an accepted part of that culture. But if you take it and transplant it over to people of African descent, then it's like, oh, they must be weird. Mm-hmm. It's really the same idea that humans at different points in time like to experience some kind of spectator participation right okay mm-hmm. so why would it be different just because you now change the race or the location of people i think that's just a human quality that i don't fully understand as an individual sitting here in 2021 but i know that it happens in various places throughout the world uh and just seems really you know, egregious. Uh, but, you know, rather than trying to give you a reason why they do it, it's just that we know that this happens widely, mm-hmm. not not just limited to, to a handful of uh, groups of people. Right. right. And then secondly, it said something about cutting off body parts. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that in most early cultures, there was this sense that everything has spirit. And if you have defeated a powerful foe, then to cut off part of their body and keep that as a totem, keep that as a, as a evidence of your conquest, then you can gain some of that strength or their protection from whatever God, et cetera, et cetera. Again, over time, historically, that has not been seen as, as gruesome as much as part of the conquest of battle. Mm-hmm. And as we get closer and closer into the 20th and 21st centuries, we don't like to think that people did those kinds of things, and yet we know pretty consistently that that was not that long ago. People took scalps and people fetished um, the, uh, the, the bodies of lynched people, mm-hmm. right? mainly to claim that you were there. Right. So yeah. I, no, no, especially you know, when you talk about like, yeah, they would um, sell body parts of the lynch. First of all, they would have picnics of people getting lynched. And, oh, yeah, um, which, which and, and just gives me willy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Now, hold on. Did you teach me this? I'm not sure. The, the concept of picnic was from pick a nigger and um, that's kind of, yeah, that, didn't, that didn't come from me. That didn't come from you. Okay. I don't know where I no. got that from. Okay. I feel like, I, I feel like I read that somewhere. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Um, but anyway, all right. I know we, we gotten off subject here. That's my fault. All right. Let's talk. Let's, let's talk about again. Um, do you want to? There's so many we can, so many places we can go here. I was gonna say, do we want to talk about the concept of slavery, or do we want to go into abolitionism? 
I'm let you. Well, let let let's do one category first, which is I I like to again remind people, or actually, you know, as I said, you know, tell you the truth about the the American Revolution. Okay. So this is the the separation right from English colonies where everything was for the benefit of, of Mother England, and then the breaking away and the establishment of this quote unquote new nation that would be different. Okay. Let you rock. Which you want. Keep rocking. Right. Yeah. You know, so by the time you get to that, the the use of Africans as slaves to promote economic value, which made the colonies a, a valuable product for England, uh, was was 120 years, give or take, of bringing now African slaves all the way into the English colonies, and primarily tobacco and rice were valuable commodities that were making money for both the colonists and then also England. Now, in that, in that concept, there's also a, a, a sort of different triangle trade that I want to throw in there very briefly, is that the South is agricultural, right? So Virginia, Carolina, um, Georgia by then, are, are creating the product or the work. Now, given that the value of the land and agriculture is so much, they are going to then have business partners who build ships, who build warehouses, who build the shipping ports that are going to be the merchants of these valued products in the what we now call the Lower South. So where are these ports and where are these warehouses for the most part? Where are these? Where are these businessmen that are creating the products and the insurance companies and all that? Where are they located? You're asking me where? The, yeah. I mean, I don't understand the question. Like, they're, they're, okay, they're, they're they're going to be in New York. They're going to be in Boston. Oh, okay. They're going to be I in the it. Northern Colonies. Okay, right, right. Because meaning the, that the thirteen colonies, right? Okay, got you. Yeah. Got so, you. you know, the entire colonial world is wrapped up. To protect slavery, even if later people can say, well, you know, we didn't have that many slaves in New York. We didn't have that many. But they are financially right. connected to gotcha. the plantation owners in the South. Mm-hmm. And they are making money, you know, uh, by, by, by the activities of slavery. And then they are going to be the primary shippers and movers of product mm-hmm. to England. Mm-hmm where they exchange for goods and materials that are needed to then sail back across and, you know, bring all of the goods and materials that England produces back. And so they have their own little, quote-unquote, triangular trade sort of thing going. Right. But because England is now at war with Spain and France and other European countries, which you well know, they start to tax the colonists right. more in the mid-1700s. Right. And so the colonists, the white colonists decide this is unfair and to show you how aggrieved they are and how horribly they're being treated, what do they compare their conditions to? They say this is... Their right to say, raise up and have a revolution. What, what do they call themselves? They're they being could, treated they, like... They're being... They're, it's tyranny, and they're saying that they're being, it's like, uh, 
sort of slavery. They're being slaved to the crown. Exactly. Yeah. Slaved which, to the crown. Which, which is a terrible irony, right? Right. Because they, we, we, hold on, before we move on, we still use that concept that people de, de, um, devalue the term of slavery so much that they say, oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm being, it, it's slavery and they use it to political ideology or being, uh, uh, um, Currently, today, they say how they're using, they're being, uh, they're being treated like slaves or being, you know, whatever. And it's like yeah. Yeah. devaluing of what the actual term is. Keep going. Exactly. Or my favorite, I'm being paid slave wages. Being paid slave wages, right, right. Uh, <laughs> being excuse paid me, you don't, slave You don't wages. really understand. Right. You, you really don't, don't understand the, the purpose of slavery here, do you? Right, right, <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, you know, you're right. But it's. That's one of those key things is that for the first time, at least in a broader political sense, some of the white colonial world sees slavery as a negative as opposed to only a positive. Right. And to that end, black people are, you know, at that time in the colonies go, what took you so long? (laughs) <laughs> right. This this is this is what we've been saying. You know, why do you think we keep trying to run away? Why do you keep having to have harsher and harsher slave codes and rules? Right. You know, why are you always worried that we're going to rise up? Because nobody wants to be held against their will or made to do things against their will. Freedom of course Freedom is of, the yeah. most important value and commodity out there. Right? It, it's just one of those great moments where if people looked at it from that perspective, is that their primary argument, the white colonial primary argument was that they were being treated like slaves, therefore they deserve to be free. Mm-hmm. And slaves are going, uh-huh, yeah. Right. Uh, we've been waiting for you to you know, have your little enlightened moment here. Right. <laughs> and But to that end... So they... they, but, they Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm stepping all over you. Yeah. But to that end, just just throw this last one in, is that somewhat coming back into the historical cycle thing, is that it's now better known that Christmas Attic, mm-hmm. a runaway slave, was the first person to politically die yeah, for... in the context of the American Revolution. Yeah. But it only makes sense that he would be there if you understood the previous thing, which is, yeah, I'm not out here because I want colonial freedom. I'm out here because everybody should want freedom. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so go ahead. No, I was going to say that they, so they're railing against the crown and, you know, they're, they sparked this thing for American Revolution. The crown then sees, because now the crown is broke. And they don't really, they can't really finance because they just got out of dealing, as you mentioned previously, uh, dealing with a number of different wars. And now they cannot deal with this upstart of insurrectionists, these people who are thousands of miles away um, in another right. part of the world wanting to break away and break away from the British Empire. So they start sending out messages to slaves and say, listen, if you join, the, join us, we will, and we win, we will discard slavery. And at that point, um, England has gotten rid of slavery anyway. Um, and so 
it's not so far fetched that they would hold their promise that they would say we would discard slavery. Yeah. I've often felt that uh, this is a little part, little known black history. Slaves didn't really, for a large part, didn't really know this was a thing because they were kept in the dark about the machinations of what the war was. They weren't told, yeah. you know, or else they would have flipped to the English side. So the the most important commodity at that point was information. Because, uh-huh. because they lacked information. Because if, imagine if you're a slave, you know, and you find out that you're the person who's holding you bondage was fighting his quote unquote landlord and his landlord is telling you that if he should win, I'm going to let you free, let you go. Uh-huh. Of course, that's information you wouldn't want to know. It could be like, Oh hell, I'm going to go ahead and fight for the landlord. I'm not going to fight for this guy that's give me enslaved. But of course they weren't, this information wasn't as known because they kept slaves in the dark and, mentally um you know incapacitated as far as information is concerned yeah but another great part about this time is that in general this american revolution era is the first mass movement of 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 slaves to the category of free for partly what you just mentioned but a couple of other reasons that i'll give you as well Mm -hmm. and therefore if slaves by definition are not going to be fully educated on everything, word of mouth and basic intellect should get a higher priority because they very quickly begin to see that this debate or argument about liberty and freedom and inalienable rights is spreading throughout the slave community. Mm-hmm. And we know even before, um, you know, 1776, slaves are either getting somebody or getting the few handful of educated black people to begin to write legal petitions using the argument of the white colonists that there is an inalienable right to freedom and that if you truly believe in all these things that we're hearing and seeing being printed up in the in newspapers, that slavery should be removed. And in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, New New York, you find that there is the beginning of courts that look at these petitions and go, you're making a good point. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a a court or just as a piece in Virginia or South Carolina, uh, you don't see it that way. Okay. So what we know in the aftermath is after the American Revolution, there's this very clear demarcation between North and South, right? That wasn't necessary before the American Revolution. But it isn't that, again, that the North was morally stronger, is that they didn't rely on field labor, slave labor, in the same way as the South did. Mm-hmm. So they were voting for their interests, and they could be, what do you want, more benevolent for lack of a better phrase. Okay, is that connecting together? That's connecting together. So, um, but I I think it's interesting we should, I I don't want to take too much esteem, but we're going to see this again where the the D 
demarcation of reality and what they're propagating in American ideology of freedom is transferred in world in war. And I'm talking about, you know, in, in World War Two, where they can kind of differentiate. Oh, yeah, we're fighting fascism and and, you know, all this other stuff. But at the same time, sorry, that's my garage going up. If you can hear it in the background. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, they are being, I guess, I, I, what's the word? I guess ironic or what's the word? They're not even, there's this level of disconnect of reality and fantasy of how they view freedom. And of course, yeah. it's how they view uh, freedom in terms of black people. Um, but we don't have to, we, that's late. we can do that later on. I mean, as we get deeper into yeah. it. Well, I don't, that's, I don't wanna, that's again, I, a, that's a, that's a thread or a theme that I think runs through a lot of black history is that, uh, that black people frequently have to hold that mirror up mm-hmm. to the white political leadership and say, listen to what you're saying. We agree with this. You just need to apply it to everybody, not just you. Right. Right? That happens again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's why you have these, these um, you know, abolitionist movements and, and civil rights movements and, you know, trying to bring laws back more towards this idea of actual freedom. Mm-hmm. Because there's always this backtracking. It's like, well, we didn't really mean for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So, anyway, so back to the American Revolution, there's, there's, there's going to be approximately, because it's hard to, to tie down specific numbers and all this. Approximately about 100,000 uh, slaves prior to the American Revolution that will be in the category of non-slaves. And I say that specifically because they're free, but why don't they don't see themselves or be treated as free, right? But at least 100,000. It's the first mass movement of people from the category of slave to free. Why? Because of the language, the rhetoric of the American Revolution is going to be a trigger. And there's essentially five categories. One I just told you, the right to legal petition. That's a few. Uh, manumission, there are going to be some owners who automatically, uh, I shouldn't say automatically, but again, sort of begin to rethink things like Richard Allen, the famous black preacher. Hmm. Right? He actually was able to twist his owner into setting him free, giving him papers based on his moral argument that if you're really a religious person, you should listen to all these words you're saying in inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. And then they could either serve for the British or for the Americans, but only with the caveat that we're serving, not because we want you to win, it's because you promised me to be free at the end. And then probably the most important is going to be is that in the chaos of war, virtually half of this 100,000 are just going to run away. Because they understand that here's an opportunity. It's the best opportunity we've had up to this point in time. And they can sort of just disappear, whether it's to mingle with Indians or to um, um, go to, uh, to a northern state where there seems to be more petitions and manumission, or just to go into uh, free black communities throughout. Um, but that's a significant number because you can't really start an abolitionist movement unless there is a sizable free black population. So let's talk about abolition, right? Sure, yeah. 
that that was my little segue to get to that. Oh, okay. We're on the same page. Um, I know you've you've spoken about abolitionism and the true concept of it really started not because of um, sympathetic white Christians necessarily, but because it was a black advocate. Um, who, oh yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't go ahead and expand upon that yeah. for me. Okay. Well, two things first. One is that this again, the free black population. There, there is no significant number of free blacks prior to the American Revolution. So that's why I say that's sort of important to note that that was triggered by all this rhetoric of you know liberty and the name of the rights, what have you. And they're somewhat optimistic, right? You have Phyllis Wheatley. You have all these people writing about the prospects of, you know, if you give us an education, we can be better, we can uh, contribute, et cetera, et cetera. So this is now where most people have started to, uh, or started the whole idea of slavery in America, that if people think of 1776 and the American Revolution, mm-hmm. 1793, there's something invented called the cotton gin. Eli Whitney, you know what's important? yeah, and Eli Whitney, well, he, it, he creates a cotton right? gin. But he so does, in other words, he, but okay, to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he creates a cotton gin in a way to, and I don't know if my history could be wrong here, but in order to cut down on the labor, but increase the productivity. Right. Okay. Because cotton was not, was known, but it was not a valued product because it took too long to, process. to clean it. Yeah to get the seeds out, but now you have a machine, and by that it was a, you know, a hand, or a, you, you pushed it through grinders, so you still had to crank it or whatever. Yeah. Right? So at the very time, again, the timing of this is what the point I want people to take away, is that right at this opportune moment where 100,000 people access freedom, there's this possibility of slavery beginning to slip away, you suddenly then introduce the very product that is usually identified with U.S. slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So that's the, that's the whole push then up through the Civil War is going to be cotton. Cotton can be grown anywhere where the weather or the soil is, is applicable. Mm-hmm. And so the expansion west that happens after the American Revolution is going to vastly increase the number of slaves, and it also makes more uh, politically uh, uh, controversy between the North and the South in terms of those relative terms. So around around 1800, right after the cotton gin, there is approximately one million slaves in the United States. By the time you get to the Civil War, it's four million. Wow. So um, now around that time. Uh, they had stopped the or the importation of slaves had become illegal, but it was, that, that was I'm sorry. Right. That was part of the debate in and around the American Revolution. Right. So the importation. Of, those, go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep stepping on you. Prof. That those 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 petitions and manumissions that were happening in the north mm-hmm. means that there's this constant idea that, well, maybe we really don't need slavery and therefore. Uh, you know, we can begin to kind of move this away. Mm-hmm. And 
the southern states were like, no, this is how we exist. Mm -hmm. And so there was an agreement to disagree. And there was a 20-year moratorium at the end of the American Revolution, which would then make it uh, 1788, Mm -hmm. 20 years. They said there will not be a ban on import for 20 years, and then we'll take another vote in 1808. Now, to cut to the chase, in 1808, they decided to ban legally the importation of new slaves. So, gee, guess what 20-year period more slaves were imported into the United States than any other 20-year period? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right. Because they're trying to beat a deadline. Right. It's like like once we find out something is getting taken away, now the interest starts to really grow in trying to um, take advantage of this time slot. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it won't just de- decrease slavery because they'll find other ways to increase the population, but By the, the, direct, yeah. the direct legal import of slaves from the continent of Africa will pretty much be a trickle after 1808. Right. Actually, right? And it has to do with cotton. It has to do, that's where cotton comes in. As I sometimes tell my students, the reason you think you know so much about slavery and cotton is because there's pictures. You know, <laughs> because the history of slavery is far more about rice and tobacco and sugar. Mm. Cotton is just at the very end of things. Mm. But because there's more documentation and it becomes the most valuable product for the United States, not for the rest of the slave world. Yeah. Right. We tend to, you know, hyperventilate over anything about cotton. Right. So that's interesting, now, though, because... Okay. The thought process is that, all right, our idea of slavery is, you, you think about it, it's all about, you say it's all about cotton. Yeah. And, but the advent of photography allows for people to really have a imagery, especially post-slavery, having an imagery of what the depiction was. Um, yeah. and, and even in that sense, it really didn't show the the real brutality of it. It showed it it showed the slashback, the people slaves getting, you know, slashback and, and and the downtrodden living and whatnot. But it didn't really it's depict the, the brutality of the entire thing to the point where in, in that period, as I, we stated, the boon of slaves it was the forced um, procreation of slaves. Like they would force slaves to, to um, have sex with one another in order to create more slaves. Right. Yeah, the breeding. Breeding. Yeah. yeah, they were breeding. They were they were literally breeding human beings, and to the point where breeding to a point to where they were like, oh, this one, he's a quote unquote a, a buck. He's a big big slave, and this one, she's a she's a big woman. So let's go ahead and put them together. We can create this superhuman of a of a uh, um, of a slave, and yeah. it's really disgusting when you think about it. But that's really, um, really what happened. Now, a lot of people. You live in California, and yeah. you taught me this. You may not remember to teach me this, but you taught me this. The the biggest um, importation of not importation, that's the wrong word, the biggest uh, advent for 
the Civil War was California. Because you talked about westward expansion, and they were trying to right. figure out what they're going to do with this California territory because it, it it goes up and down to Mason-Dixon. And this was the biggest prize. Um, Louisiana, they, the South had claimed Louisiana, and so that was a big populace in Texas, now California. And it the Civil War revolved strictly around the westward expansion to California. We had just, not we, the United States had just yeah. taken it away from well, let Mexican national. interject briefly, we, we've come full circle. What, what was the rush to make California a state? Gold. Yeah. So, so right. you know, we started off with Mansa Musa and Europeans looking, right? Yeah. So we're full circle here. Right. And so... It's not, it's not exactly a comparison, but, no, you know, in, right. incentive-wise, it shows you the this economic driver thing. Right. And so it was California because they were trying to figure out what we're going to do. Are we going to make California a slave state or non-slave state? And it was really about power. It wasn't about because they cared about equality of human capital. But it were like you had northern states who in Washington coalesced into a body of political power. And you had southern states, <clears throat> slave states. And to have another state added, <laughs> which ideally went both Mason and across the Mason-Dixon line, it's like, is it a northern state? Is it, is it a southern state? And Or do we split yeah, it in two? Extended, right. Yeah, extended beyond, beyond that or southern, south of the imaginary line right. that supposedly identified all the land west of here is going to be slave states, but California usurped some of that. So that, yeah. yeah, that was definitely a trigger. Yeah. Um, so, well, before we move into that, um, did, are we done extrapolating with the abolitionists and then and how? Oh, not quite, unless we have to move forward. <laughs> no, no, we can, listen, this is yeah. my podcast. I don't care yeah. if we, how, how long we take. Let's, let's get some okay. grit off the bone. That's my thing. I like, I All right. like to. But I, but, I, but I did need to establish this whole issue of, you know, cotton is really pushing against this idea that maybe abolition would, you know, have a life of its own. Mm-hmm. But now you have this growing number of free black people that are now a problem. Right. Because as we said before, when you get too many free or too many people that are not enslaved, like on, you know, the continent of Africa or why they couldn't enslave the Indians, then there's a problem. So that leads to uh, both uh, North and, and South uh, White come up with something called the American Colonization Society, mm. right? Which was an idea that they could persuade free black people and they would take land in Africa and establish a homeland like England had already done in Sierra Leone. And then they would have to raise funds and ship free people back. And then slavery could continue without all these complications of having this larger number of free black people. That's a very short version. Now, at that point, there were some black leaders that were seeing the laws tighten and everything and were, well, you know, this might not be such a horrible idea, but given the fact that they had always worked in some kind of collaborative process, decided to have a meeting. And in 1817, 
There was this mass meeting of as many black people that could get there at the first African-American church ever in the United States called Mother Bethel. And there's this mass meeting where there's a debate on whether black people should consider, free black people, excuse me, should consider going back to Africa. And overwhelmingly, as the reports show, black people, mostly the rank and file, said we will never separate ourselves voluntarily from our enslaved brethren. We will stay and fight for the freedom of everybody. Now, remember, just to qualify, these are the people at the meeting. Um, if you went there, you probably had a, a vested stake. Right? So we can't say that every single black person was you know, on board with all this. But, but certainly it's an important point at which this concept of abolition is clearly stated. Right? Black people were the ones going to fight to the end because whites were given an alternative. You know, if we get rid of the free black people, then we can do whatever we want. Right. Not long after that, in New York City, the very first black-owned and black-published newspaper called Freedom's Journal mm -hmm. is published. Now, the name sort of gives away what its intent is, right? Right. And then one of the contributors to Freedom's Journal was a guy by the name of David Walker. Walker, a couple of years after Freedom's Journal comes out, writes his own little pamphlet called an appeal to the colored citizens of the world. And he argues much as what was said in the American Revolution about inalienable rights and moral justification and that no one should be held in bondage. But it takes us to that next step where he also says that there is a call, if not given to us, a call for armed black resistance. Mm -hmm. If necessary, black people should take up arms to gain their freedom. Yeah. Gee, who do you think this inspires later on in the 1960s? Mm. <laughs> right. Right? right. And Malcolm X, Malcolm X even said and wrote that one of the things that he read in prison right. was the, David Walker's appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Anyway, they uh, rest there only slightly. No, no. Then, that's, that's dope. I love it. Go keep going. Yeah. yeah. And then in, in 1830, Richard Allen and other black free leaders begin something called the Black Convention Movement. And these black leaders met annually all the way up to the Civil War. Talk about strategies and slavery, what they can do, boycotts, petitions, organizations, raise money all those kinds of things. And all that was in place before something called The Liberator was published by William Lloyd Garrison, which in the history books that I was given coming up through my own educational process is when people say the abolitionist movement started. Mm -hmm. right? Right. So I only gave you some quick highlights there, but just to say there was all this, all this evidence of a black abolitionist effort and then the books, the published books come out and say, well, in 1831, you know, William Lloyd Garrison started the right. uh, the abolitionist movement that led to the Civil War. Right, in Philadelphia, right. And then, but it's this concept. And that, he's, he's important, but he's not the first. He's not the first. But it, what, what does it go into this whole, and this is the basis of the entire podcast, that um, culture really wasn't 
considered uh, or the topic was not considered uh, fair play and generalized until um, white people put a stamp on it, right? But it yeah. was established the idea of freedom being um, the idea of freedom and, and pursuance of equality um, starting out in the abolitionist movement is a false narrative that is not true. And it was really to, it, to think that there weren't black advocates prior to abolitionism who had a large impact in spreading the message is something that we need to be destroyed. There were a number of people who advocated on the, um, advocated for the, themselves, for their people, but you know, history has, sitting, has seemingly written them out as far as this narrative. Because when you think about abolitionism, <clears throat> you think about, you know, and it, it, I understand it, but you think about uh, white Quakers um, taking it upon themselves to free, help, you know, spread the message of free, freeing black people. And that's just part of the story. It's not the entire story. Correct. And, and mainly because of the uh, deprivation of education, at least open education for most black people, there's not a lot of documentation written by black people. Mm-hmm. But you can find by going back even into white newspapers and white pamphlets and, and other uh, um, sources that were written at the time, you know, the records of these things that were happening in the black community and around the time of the American Revolution, like I mentioned, Phyllis Wheatley and Benjamin Banneker, some of these others were beginning to document and write and leave their own records. Right. But then they were overlooked really until, you know, sort of African-American history became a bigger thing in the 60s and 70s, right. 1960s and 70s. Um, so it, it's, a re, it's not a rewriting as much as remembering of what some people would have known at the time, but they get sort of written out after the fact. Right. One more quick little reference. It's sort of like the, the movie um, Hidden Hidden Heroes or what, what um, you know, those women mathematicians. Yeah. Oh, Hidden Figures. Yes. Uh, hidden Figures. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They were heroes. Um, you know, people, people, actually may have read those names when it was happening, but then they just get removed. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which always reminds me of different things. There's, there's, uh, there's only been a couple of stories that I've seen. You may have seen more. But one of the initiators of the COVID vaccine right now is this African-American woman. Right? right? Yeah. Dr. Corbett? Yeah. And, you know, play off of the phrase, you know, say her name, as I wish more people would mention this, because that, those are the types of things that happen to significant people in history, is if you don't keep mentioning those names, yeah. people sort of forget that there was any contribution by, um, you know, the white folks, or the black folks, I mean, and, and the, the ones you keep seeing on TV are all the white folks. And that, that's, again, goes, goes back to your title of your whole podcast here, right? Is how these biases get, get so entrenched, and a lot of it's repetition hmm. or lack thereof. Look at you. Look at you Make it, doing the tie-in. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. 
So let's move into the Civil War, shall we? Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to say something controversial, but you taught me this. So I'm going to, you can blame. I could blame you. Um, Abraham Lincoln wasn't this <laughs> equality-based leader um, that people tend to propagate, right? They, yeah. He was essentially, he didn't even believe that slaves should be freed. His, not I, initially. Not initially. You know, in fact... Abraham Lincoln was somebody who actually looked at blacks as um, inferior. Yeah. And the narrative that, you know, he, uh, um, that he was this righteous man who had a soul for the soul for people is a little bit of whitewashing who he really was. Um. He just didn't want <laughs> he didn't want the U.S. to break on his watch. <laughs> he was like, "Not on my watch, yeah. you know." This, yeah. Y'all not y'all not about to do this in my presidency, you know. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's the way you taught me. Am I, you want to go ahead and expand upon that? Yeah. Now, just to say it a little bit differently, is that the the, the plus that I will give Lincoln mm-hmm. is that he was willing to. Uh, listen and eventually grow and change his mind. Yeah. Which, you know, both of us have in our lives have run across people go, well, that's what I think and no, nobody can ever make me think differently. Right. Right? Well, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, life is about education and, you know, being able to adjust and shift. And I would say that the majority of white people at the time of Lincoln were obstinate. And so... On the plus side, you know, at least we can see from the record that it took a long time, but, you know, slowly Lincoln did come around to a different thought process, but it was still more exactly as you said about the presidency, the union, all of those things. And the most famous speech is that one where he says, if I could free all the slaves and save the union, I would do that. If I could free, if I could keep all the slaves and keep the union, I would do that. If I could do half and half, I would do that. Well, obviously, what's his primary objective? The, the union. The union. And right. I, I, I want to add this because I, I, Lincoln was not. Um, he didn't believe in the institution of slavery, right? Um, Correct. He did not believe in institution he, of slavery, even when he was coming up as a lawyer in Illinois and 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 a congressman and whatnot. And so, he, but he was not an abolitionist, right? He did not, he, he did believe in the marginal and inferiority of black Americans or black people. Cause they weren't even Americans at the time. Um, he looked at black people as inferior, but he didn't think that they should be held in bondage. That's, you know, so no, whatever that's you know, and, and there, and there's a difference between not believing in slavery and believing that black people could be free. Right. Because that people, people still struggle with that today. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe even more offensive is, is this kind of perpetuation of the Emancipation Proclamation. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's the eighth card, right? When people say, well, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. 
that you know shows that he was against slavery. Right. Uh, no. <laughs> First of all, what frees the slaves is the Thirteenth Amendment mm-hmm. that happens two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. Now, see if you remember this one. Okay. How many slaves does the Emancipation Proclamation free? How many slaves is the Emancipation Proclamation free? How many slaves become free because Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation? I don't know the number, but I'm going to say it was only it only applied to the... It's a, it's a single-digit number. Oh, okay. I'm just throwing, I don't remember the number, Professor. The number is zero. Oh. Ha! <laughs> 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 failed. Right? I it, failed that quiz. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but again, it's because it's been repeated more often the other way. But ah. that this is the magic moment in time. Mm-hmm. And so, first, let me give you the explanation of the Emancipation Proclamation, and then oh, I'll tell you why you know it's what? zero. You know what? I'm so yeah, I'm, I'm dumb. <laughs> I'm dumb because I, as, as you said it, I know yeah. exactly. I know where you're going with it. I know. Yeah, I know why. I know why it, it didn't do anything. Go ahead. Because the Emancipation Proclamation was a war tactic. Yes. Right? Yes. Is that Lincoln is saying that in, I believe it, I probably get a little bit of the date wrong, but it it was either September or October of 1862. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I am going to sign this Emancipation Proclamation. It will go in effect on January 1 unless you stop, or, or if you stop fighting, and the union stays together, then it will not become a law, right? Or it will not become my proclamation. If you continue to fight, then I will proclaim that all slaves in rebellious areas are now free. Now, the problem with that is the Confederacy has already declared itself a separate nation. They don't listen to or follow any laws of the union or Abraham Lincoln. And therefore, he has no legal authority to free slaves in the Confederacy. Yes. He has no authority and because be- they don't even recognize him at this point. Correct. Now, there were what we call border states, four states that stayed in the Union and still had legal state slavery, according to them. Lincoln does have authority over those, but he very specifically said I will only free slaves in rebellious areas because he did not want to lose those four states to join the Confederacy and weaken the Union further. Right. So even when he makes a statement that seems to say, I'm against slavery, it's really more a war tactic to try to force the South to give up the Civil War and stop fighting. Now, the fact that they didn't come back in doesn't change the purpose that the proclamation was offered in the first place. But to that end, the slaves that Lincoln had legal authority to free in the border states, he doesn't free them. And the ones that he has no authority over, he claims that they should be free, but they're part of the Confederacy and they are not going to be freed whatsoever. So therefore, the correct answer is zero. Right. Now, real briefly, now, psychologically, and certainly sociologically speaking, 
there is going to be a ripple effect, right? People yeah. are going to believe what they want to believe, and they might be more encouraged or incentivized to fight for an eventual end of slavery. But in actual legal terms, there, there are no slaves freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. So Lincoln becomes this problematic person if you pick at all the little pieces. Yeah. So, okay. Do we want to continue with yeah. with Civil well, War? One, one more quick thing about Lincoln. And then the problem, the other problem with Lincoln is that, that after the fact, people go, well, if Lincoln would have lived, X, Y, and Z would have happened. Nobody knows. Right. You know, but given given what we've just covered, there's good possibility that it wouldn't have been that much different. Right. Might have been, but we don't actually know. But people love to talk about, well, you know, if Lincoln would have, wouldn't have been killed, then, you know, the U.S. would have been a different country, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sure it would be different, but so, it wouldn't mean that the outcome wouldn't be pretty much the same. So that, that goes into my concept of like the post-Reconstruction era, right? Um, because the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are, are um, enacted. And the idea of 40 acres and a mule and everything that goes along with that, um, you know, this thought process of, you know, Lincoln assassination pretty much put the kibosh on that. Um, are you... Of the, you're, I guess you're not of the mindset that it necessarily those things would have actually manifest manifest themselves, or at least not in the long term. It's sort of like you know what we briefly know is that during the time of federal protection, mm-hmm. black people did make some advances in the in in the Reconstruction period. As long as there was military in the South, you know, I, I because they've read, you know, my students have read the chapter. I can say, did you notice that there were black people elected? Yeah, how'd that happen? Like, you know, I thought the first one elected was Obama, right? No, yeah. The post, actually, the, the, the post-Reconstruction era saw the greatest um, uh, influx of black legislators, congressmen, and we saw the black black senator in Mississippi. I forget his, the senator's name. Uh, yeah, Ravel. Yeah, right. So, um, so right, but... but but th- that that shows you. I mean, black people, even then, are a lot smarter than people give credit for because they understood that this the way to some access to power that would improve economic and political and social standing was to get people in there to represent us, you know, our interests. And there was a high participation of black people in the political process, and they were not up to the percentage of population that they existed. But they needed that one thing that is also then from this point forward, something that a lot of people don't consider is how reliant on the federal government black people are. Because they are a minority group and without federal protection, state individuals and corporations are going to do whatever the hell they want because they are the majority. And this is where the advent of states' rights became this you know, this dictum of, you know, white Southern um, political ideology of we got to protect state rights, you know, but it was yeah. never about state rights as much as we got to protect state. Uh, yeah. Well, we, we need to, con- we need to control the labor force that right. 
we see going away because if black people can do whatever they want, well, what they don't want to do is work for Mr. Whitey anymore. Right. So, okay, so, so, so how do we how do we force them back into that condition? We need to have our own rules and laws. So we we're 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 in post reconstruction, and we mentioned Hiram Rhodes Rebels, Hiram Rebels, yep. Hiram Rhodes Rebels. That's his name. Um, he is actually was elected by the Mississippi State, State Legislature to uh, succeed Albert G. Brown, who was had to resign during the Civil War because of his role in the Civil War. And he's no longer recognized as a senator. So you saw black, um, you saw the, it within Georgia, Alabama, um, these, this influx of black legislatures. Now, a lot of people don't realize, and I've said this in his speech, uh, that black people actually terraformed public policy in the United States. What that means is, is during that time, Black legislators, they realize the one thing we can do to really create equality was education. But they didn't, there wasn't a public education system at the time. So right. black legislators then decided to create the public education system that would affect everybody, just not with black Americans. And right. with that created, you know, so we had people who can now have formalized education paid for by the government not by uh, private donors. And so if it wasn't for black people, we would not be, you would not have public schools. People don't realize that. You would not have public schools because nobody was- At least as soon, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, at least, right, at least that early on, right? Because Mm -hmm. for a large part, it was an agricultural um, nation and it was understood that, all right, if you did not have the money for private schooling, you would just go ahead and work on the farm or get into a a, um, a trade, right? It wasn't, we weren't, the U.S. wasn't trying to build up education for us. They were trying to build up workers. And we yeah. needed you to be a worker. You need to get, get your, it was an economic caste system in that sense. So black people helped create this, the concept of uh, public education and thus, um, and then, you know, of course, trying to, create a society of learned uh, populace, regardless of your economic standing. Um, I just wanted just yeah. to kind of throw that out there, yeah. that little, little black, no, little known black history fact. All right. Yeah. Well, let me, let me throw a quick little, little story in on that is that okay. Frederick Douglass, you know, is a person that, that lived during slavery and then was also an influential figure during the period you're just talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And he always, he wrote in his autobiography was that one of the greatest lessons he said that he ever learned was when he was still quite young, the wife of, of, of his owner would allow him to sit on the lessons with the white kids. Mm-hmm. And when the, the, the male, the husband came in one day early and saw Frederick learning this lesson, he went ballistic, right? Right. And insisted that he never be, you know, don't educate those niggers, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And Frederick Douglass says, says, that was the best lesson I ever learned because there must be something important about an education right. to make this guy go so crazy. Right. I'm just paraphrasing now, right? Mm-hmm. He was much better at big words than I was. Right. <laughs> and to that end, people like Frederick Douglass, when slavery was legally ended, was a huge advocate of education, was somebody who constantly was advising 
you know, people who had the possibility that the first, one of the first things of freedom would be to learn how people use words, the legal system to control you, mm. right? And therefore that, 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 that ties back into, as you say, there was a lot of uh, effort on the part of elected black leaders to make sure that education was part of this political change, particularly in the southern states. Yeah. So now we, we are, um, and, and to the point where Reconstruction had such a huge influx of black legislators, legislators and um, it created a more of a, they were really, for a quick period of time, a sense of equality can really be reached in the nation through public policy. And then they changed the laws and <laughs> they started doing districting and to really say, hey, well, we can't have these people um, started getting elected to office and start making things equal. So let's get into districting, redistricting offices. And that's where you started to see real political maneuvering in Washington of creating a um, power with a select few that didn't rep- that represented a m- many. And we're still dealing with that today. That's why the word. Were- no, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we still see how, you know, how does somebody from this state control 330 million people? Well, because back then um, they realized that we don't want representatives, real representatives representing people, because that might actually create too much of a, an equal nation. So we want people who have the interest of, um, of interest of a few to represent the many in order to control everyone. And that is the concept of redistricting. That is the concept of our current political environment. And we are still dealing with the after effects of post-reconstruction era activities because, let's put it plainly, white political leaders did not like what they were seeing and they could see down the field like, this is not going to help us. We're going to end up being on on the bottom end if this shit keeps going, keeps trending in a certain way. And this is why now, I'll, add, I'll, go ahead. I'll add one important layer onto that, however, is remember the black people didn't go along with this willingly. And that's why you have these militia groups, mm-hmm. these white militia groups that were no longer being stopped by any federal forces that begin to emerge. Now, the one that people always defer to is that, oh, they were members of the Klan. Right. Well, the Klan is just a euphemism like Xerox, right? It's it's one company, but everything becomes the same. Right. Is that the, the clan came in multiple, you know, sort of identifications? Because each town, each jurisdiction had their own little thing. There were groups called the Knights of the White Camellia, the Red Shirt, Silver Shirt, Mother's Little Helpers, Baseball Club of the First Baptist Church. Those are actual names, right? Okay? And many, many more. And they all did the same thing. They used violence to stop black people from going to the polls, stop black people from running for office, stop them or attempted to stop them from publishing, from getting an education, all of those types of things. And this is going to take from the 1870s up until the 1890s until the southern states can officially legislate what we call Jim Crow laws. Okay, here we go. All right. Okay. Yep. Now, Jim Crow laws are not legal if you actually could take them to the court of law because federal law should supersede a state law. Right. 
But if there is no enforcement of the law, then the 14th Amendment that says you have a, if you're born in the United States, you can be a citizen, the states can say, no, you don't exist. You, you, none of your rights or interests are going to be upheld because we don't agree with that. And therefore, up until the modern civil rights movement, you have a state law that runs, and they're all they're all slightly different, but they have the same intent and purpose. Right. Um, quick caveat: the between that to 1870, 1890, um, a lot of things called boom towns popped up across the country, and it, the fascination behind that era became the Western, the great you know, Western, um, you know, yeah. you know, cowboys and whatnot. Uh, black people actually were the first cowboys. And uh, because we were the ones. Mexicans, who, actually, that's okay. Oh, <laughs> yes, very true. Thank you. Right, the vaqueros, but, yeah. but most, most of the Americans that became what we call cowboys were definitely black, not John Wayne. Right. Right, and what people should realize the uh, the West American West or whatever they what do you call it the Western whatever that was like a ten fifteen year period. It wasn't a large portion of United States history, but it's still a, oh no no yeah, yeah it's a very small section and it it is it was just because these towns that were created out of populaces that were transient in nature, and that's why they're called boom towns and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, throughout westward expansion. So anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. Uh, moving on, we're in Jim Crow era. Okay, right. Blacks in the early, the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, are now starting to realize that okay, we got to start getting out of the South. The Great Migration happens. And a lot of one 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 quick little thing before I forget that is that there was a lot more people who wanted to get out that could actually get out, mainly again because of economics. Right. Okay. That there was an effort on purpose, given that people might understand that they wouldn't just stay there on that there was debt. And debt was in terms of sharecropping yeah. or being arrested for vagrancy, mm-hmm. uh, convict lease system, whatever. I mean, there were actual constraints because people go, well, why didn't they just leave? Uh, there were legal things put into place Where they and very dire consequences if you jumped your bail or whatever the case was. So, again, there, there are reasons not just that black people just stayed in the South because they didn't know any better. Right, right. And it cost a lot of money to travel in those days. And hence the reason why when they moved, everybody moved. 20 people moved, the entire family, caravan, to populists in St. Louis yeah. and to um, Chicago and, you know, the big to big cities. It really, big cities saw, northern cities saw a big boom, obviously New York. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Detroit, a lot of these people saw economic advancement by moving out of the South from agricultural to more industrial. What they did tend to find is that their economic um, disenfranchisement changed 
um, not necessarily because they're being held to sharecropping, but because um, they were being paid low wages to work in dangerous environments um, that, you know, for factories or whatnot, or just living in the slums of these big populaces where they were literally piled up on each other, 10 to 15 people in, an, in a 600-square-foot apartment. Because um, that's all they could afford. So, um, okay. So we, again, if I can add one, add one other little layer yeah, is that there, yeah. there's, there's always this trickle of people out, but that's not really considered the great migration. The trigger for the great migration is going to be the onset of what will eventually be called world war one. Okay. Right. So in the 19 teens, Europe is convulsing in this, great conflagration, which means that the cheap labor that many American industries relied upon, which was European immigrants, is not as plentiful, and they began to look at underemployed black people in the South as a possible replacement. Mm -hmm. So sort of back again to my reason people didn't really leave, is that there were actually recruiters from Northern industry that would take a pocket full of train tickets and go down and pass them out with the name of the company or industry printed on the back of that and said, hey, we'll give you a free ticket as long as you go here and, you know, ask for work. And so they didn't, it didn't cost them anything but their own initiative and daring, right, to leave. And once the stories of a quote-unquote better life trickled back, and that continued to grow and grow. And by the time the war gets underway, you have this mass movement that will eventually be between about 1910 and 1930, about 2 million black people are going to leave the South and end up in the North pretty much permanently. Right. So with that being said, this leads to, you know, um, the thought, the thought process of, ooh, I guess, emancipation of oneself started looking through the lens of economics, right? And oh, yeah. I think this leads into what, like, Black Wall Street, right? As an example, you started seeing, okay. um, people move into di- and Black Wall Street is actually a term used for one particular area in Oklahoma in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. right? But I'm using them as an example of there were many places, especially here in the South, I, there were places like here in, or where I'm in Central Florida, just like Black Wall Street, where they had um, areas, segregated areas, which black people were, were living, but they were building up their businesses. And there was an economic structure that benefited everyone um, in their little silos of existence. Um, and so you saw black people really understand the power of the dollar and the power of economic, um, empowerment. And so, or the concept of economic empowerment, really. Um, and so the Greenwood district, um, in, in, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, became one of the most notable instances of black economic empowerment. You want to speak on that for a little bit? Sure. Okay. Um, that there was an interest in Oklahoma right at the end of Reconstruction as 
federal protection was waning, there was clearly going to be a change in the opportunities in the South. And so a small number, very small number, just a few thousand black people who had, had a little bit of economic resources are now identified as a group we call the exodusters, yeah. right? Exodus, biblical, right? Leaving and moving out to better opportunities. And it wrapped around land that they were a couple of entrepreneurs who could get land grants in Oklahoma and Kansas primarily. That yeah. they would get these tracts of land. And I usually ask my class, I go, anybody here from Oklahoma? And hardly any time anybody raised their hand. And I go, well, horrible, terrible place. <laughs> it's flat. It's hot in the summer, cold in the winter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it, it was very difficult to have an agricultural existence. So even though they moved out and established like these all black sort of small towns, economically they didn't do so well. And by about the 1890s, many people, particularly those with any means left whatsoever, would matriculate to more populated centers, in this case like Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And that was because Tulsa was an oil boom center. And while black people could not invest or be fully engaged in the oil industry, they would be segregated out, right? There were service opportunities. Right. And a black community could establish themselves. And so you're the one that brought up the name specifically. I knew more about the general terms of Greenwood, but J.B. Stratford, right. right, and Ottawa uh, Gurley mm -hmm. were two of these people who arrive in Tulsa roughly around 1900, give or take. Right. Right. And they are going to expand the tract of land in a, a section of Tulsa that will eventually be called Greenwood, with Greenwood, Greenwood Avenue being the primary street. And because there was an availability of jobs, you know, Greenwood and a, and a place essentially where you could buy from uh, black people a plot of land for a business or a homestead. Greenwood became sort of a drawing card for people that were already out in that Midwest area. Mm. Now, Oklahoma itself officially becomes a state, large part because of the people rushing in for the soil boom in 1907. Um, just to give a timeline. Mm. And statehood then is also going to legislate those state Jim Crow segregation laws. And that means that if there's going to be success for Greenwood, then black people have to do for black people. And to that end, as you noted, by the time you get to about 1920, there's 35 square blocks of black prosperity relative to black people throughout the rest of the United States. There are grocery stores. There's a couple of movie theaters. The Stratford Hotel is considered the largest black-owned hotel in the United States at that time. Mm -hmm. There are other successful businesses. But one point of emphasis for me is that the majority of people focus on Stratford, Gurley, and all these individuals. But if it's segregated, who are you selling your business products? Too. Hmm. 
other that, black people, right? right? Back, other black people, yeah. It was, like, it was insular. Right. They in, created in other words, insular, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the success of this neighborhood is not just to know the names of a few black businesses, but to know that black people, working class black people, have the money and means to build up a community of black economic success, not just, you know, the names of a couple of business people that you, you memorize and, and, and forget right. down the road. And that happens again and again. Real briefly, right? Madam C.J. Walker, mm-hmm. right? Hair care product, right? Right? What? What's her historical claim to fame? Uh, hair products and creating uh, was the first person to um, show relaxed hair, or you know, black well, hair. Black the first, in, first independent woman to be a millionaire, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But who is she sell to? Black women. Only, correct? Right. And therefore, again, people might know Madison C.J. Walker, but they forget that black people, working class black people, with their pennies and nickels, are the backbone of all these, you know, or this handful of successful names that we have. And that was how you make lemonade out of lemons, if you will. Right? It's not that most black people were financially well off. But as the story goes in Greenwood, you know, if you spent, you know, a nickel, that nickel would then go through 15 or 20 businesses and help all of those people because it stayed in that neighborhood. It couldn't go across over the street into the white community. It wouldn't leave town. It wouldn't go somewhere else. Right. Right. It stayed within the community there, that infrastructure and built up. And they were very proud of that. So they, 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 promoted their own businesses, their own community, and they kept the money and built themselves up. So someone like, say, like J.B. Stratford, he, um, just using him as an example, who had a number of different real estate businesses, and most notably the Stratford Hotel, where a lot of black people tend to congregate, uh, tend to congregate uh, for a lot of big events, um, and obviously right. to stay. It was well, it was a beautiful hotel, um, and it was well-known throughout you know, the um, Green Book, if you don't know what the Green Book is, it's, it's the black travel guide for those throughout the United States. And um, he, his net worth, they've estimated that he was around $2 million in 1920 of real estate holdings, which equates to a little over 20, close to $27 million now. Yeah. So this thing about one person was had about $27 million worth of real estate, um, you know, in his own. I mean, and he wasn't the only person. He wasn't the only person. So the amount of wealth that was um, cut off or uh, uh, taken away by eliminating just one business, um, it's innumerable as far as how it affected or the ripple effect. Uh, economic ripple effect, which destroying that particular district. And they destroyed not just the Greenwood district, but also, like as we said, a number of different districts around the country, uh, most notably here in um, Ocoee, Florida. Um, they got took away economic populace of, uh, that was a particular black population, and it was called the Ocoee Massacre here. So, yeah. um, Well, an equivalent would be is if you have a, you know, a flagship store in a mall that, closes and goes away mm-hmm. 
you know, the trickle effect is going to then the entire mall is going to suffer because that that's the biggest draw. That's where, you know, you're going to get the biggest amount of revenue. You take that, that revenue stream out and everybody else suffers. Right. Right. Now, before we get to the riot real briefly, though, is that I want to tie it back to the Great War, uh, if I can. How are we doing on time? No, we, we, I don't care. <laughs> okay. People can, All right. Listen, if they're interested, they'll, they'll continue to listen. If not, they'll tune out. Okay. But, I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, this is okay. really just for those who want to do a deep dive in history. So we okay. can keep rocking, Professor. No worries. Okay. So we talked about the Great Migration. Yeah. One of the keys was all of these jobs that suddenly became available, mostly in the North, but there were places like St. Louis and, and others that also got influxes of, of population of Black people. And the economy was doing better than it had for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And jobs were the primary driver, not that if black people made it to Chicago, suddenly they were going to be treated enormously better. Right. Right? There clearly was, was prejudice. There just weren't official Jim Crow laws. But as you noted, they, they couldn't just go rent anywhere. They couldn't go into every store. Uh, but you, you sort of made do. And during the war, Everybody was making some kind of money, and so there were less, uh, if you will, concerns and problems about this great migration. But the war, without doing any the history of the war, comes to an abrupt halt, stop, right. in, in uh, 1918. And the United States had not done any kind of planning, and the economy falls almost just precipitously. You go to full employment and war industry jobs to we don't need war industries. Right. And so at the end of the war, there's this massive economic collapse. There's going to be unemployment. Soldiers coming back from the war didn't have things like the GI Bill to rely on at that point in time. And so therefore, you have to look for scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Following me? Yeah. And to that end, in the context of Tulsa, we know that from 1919 through about 1922, there's this wave of race riots yeah. that are going to be many cases in the North, in these areas where yeah. people are going to say, how come this black person has a job and I don't have a job? So why are these, why are these black people showing signs of success and my life sucks? So listen, right? there's a theme building here, right? Because what do we feel like? In 2016, people voting for Trump, there was this thing, all oh, yep. the, the white angst, this yep. white anxiety of economic insecurity and, you know, feeling like life was yep. passing me by. And so what, how did they, they, they chose yep. to um, use their, their uh, angst to vote in a, a political ideologue, a narcissistic political ideologue, right? Um, yeah. It's the same theme. It's almost weird. It's yep. almost like, this is a symptomatic problem in American structure of sociological, um, sociological understanding of economics, right? Like, Oh, when somebody feels compressed in their economics, uh, uh, in their economic world, the tendency is to lash out and to extrapolate their feelings onto something else. So it's weird. It's a, it's a weird dynamic that we keep playing. It's it's weird, but, but almost predictable. It's predictable. It's, uh, it's cyclical. Yeah, that when you have when you have economic collapse, 
you can tie it back into an, an increase in antagonism towards the other, yeah. right? Because technically in the 1920s, there was a lot of blame on immigrants as well, but that's not really our focus or interest, right? right? But in this particular case, in the summer of 1919 in particular, northern cities were the primary place because of the Great Migration. There was this sort of new, very visible population of black people that received the brunt of outrage. But the economy didn't come back right away, and so that continued on. And as you indicated, 1921, there was this massive riot in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. Right. right. So that's sort of that our, our central part of the storyline. And it starts off with one of those sort of, again, almost predictable minor events that is not the problem. The problem is a couple of years of economic disruption, people not, you know, doing as well as they had been doing during the war and growing antagonism. Because as you may remember, there was this individual who worked on the street, black black young man, that the only bathroom available for black people was up an elevator and down the hall in this one particular building, a segregated bathroom, right, based on the rules and laws of the time. And Dick Rowland had used the same route time and again. But apparently this one day in 1921, the elevator didn't stop equally or, or directly, you know, even with the floor. And so he tripped as he's, I don't remember whether he was getting on or getting off the elevator. And what happened? Do you remember? Um, I don't recall. But you, you, no, okay. I don't recall. The elevator operator was a female, white, and he apparently touched her. Oh, and then this is the, right? yes. And then, yes. Okay. So that's always brought up. Is it, well, the reason there was a Tulsa riot was because this black man molested a white woman. Yeah, even if that person is there, that's not the real reason for this huge it was a, uh, riot. Right, right, right. right? I, I just, forgot about just, that story. I really, I didn't remember yeah, that story. Right, the economic buildup. But that, but again, for many people, they just jump into the you know what's printed in some cases, like you know well, there was a belief that this this there was this molestation. But it had been building for, for some period of time. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, of course, he's going to be arrested and accused. Uh, and black community is like, this is outrageous. This has happened too many times. And we're going to defend ourselves and defend our, our, our rights. And when they showed some intent to defend, then the white mob starts coming out with their guns and weapons. And there is going to be a, a shot fired. And things are going to explode into this massive riot that people are still doing more estimates than anything else. But the upshot is going to be is that in this 35 square blocks of black prosperity will almost literally be burned to the ground. Hmm. Right? And destroyed. Right. And there will be various reports of actual physical death. The official reporting in Tulsa at the time was that a couple dozen people died. But even the Red Cross at the time estimated there were over 300 black people killed. This is the first time in recorded or reported historically that airplanes were used domestically to 
fire upon crowds. Right. I think right? There, there was uh, there was a movie or show that came out called The Watchmen um, last year, and it, for the first time. Oh right, right. And people were for the first time. It started. The first episode was amazing. It just showed this the Tulsa riots, and I think people. First of all, it's a it's interesting how a lot of people did not know the Tulsa riots happened. And number two. Those who didn't know didn't know the extent of the damage. Number three did not know the atrocities of planes actually using bombs, nitrogen, and dropping it on businesses and on people. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it was a it's interesting and fascinating that we're just still trying to people is just now getting up to date on what happened. Um, all right. Sure. So now I'll give I'll, I'll give Tulsa this is it Tulsa very recently, not not right away. Um, you know, has started to, uh, I wouldn't say embrace, but actually to recognize this is a part of their history. There is a, a huge uh, center there now, a museum that's been built to collect any kind of, of survivor uh, testimonies and records and documentation has been, been recovered. Uh, and there's a lot more information now than was available even during much of the time that I was teaching. Um, so I'm sure there's more, more to that story than I'm aware of now. But, uh, you know, they're, they're not at least hiding it like they, they did for years and years, like it never existed. Yeah. Um, all right. So. Oh, can I say one more thing? Oh, you can, you can always <laughs> and, say. and that is, that, that really isn't the end of the story because the black, the black people, um, actually rebuilt Greenwood, and it was a very viable uh, community, not quite at the same percentage level. Right. Uh, there was actually the, ran out of town, and uh, Rufus yeah. were both ran out of town. Those, those but other other people rebuilt, and I mean, it, it was a thriving community up into the 1950s, and what really officially, quote-unquote, killed off Greenwood was going to be integration and the construction of highways and freeways. In the fifties, explain. So that. if you go there now, people like old Greenwood, or you know, we don't really have a Greenwood, right? Yeah. Um, but but they, they did by nineteen twenty five or twenty six. Um, the people there will tell you that they had, uh, you know, a very viable um, black community there once again that managed to survive the Great Depression. Um, John Hope Franklin graduated from high school. Um, you remember him? Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, he's the author of your textbook. What I was yeah. when I was using that textbook, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, graduated high school there, um, and he kept close ties with them for a long period of time, uh, and helped to recover some of that history as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just wanted to say that again. That's sometimes we sort of get to this destruction part, and that's sort of the end of the story. And in this case, time and again, we've seen that black people somehow managed to you know, survive or rebuild or do things that defy expectation. So I appreciate that, actually. Um, I want to move into World War One, And we talked, you talked about it briefly. Um, and I want to stay specifically on the black soldiers who came out of World this is War the I. Great War, the first war? The first war, World War One. Yeah, yeah, got it. And the black soldiers that came out of World War One, and not you know, 
I don't want to focus so much on what they did during World War One, but so much how did it change them and how did black soldiers coming home almost change the dynamic of black American liberation or change, at least get started getting into the thought of liberation. Okay. Let me, let me throw one early part in there, which is that world war one, and eventually it's, you know, uh, going to get that, that title that people are more familiar with it, you know, was started off as a very much of a negative because claiming to Woodrow Wilson was this was going to be a war for democracy. And once again, black people, like they did in the American Revolution, are going to say, okay, we'll show this democracy. Right. Well, the way they showed democracy for black people was uh, this was the first war in which IQ tests were, were mandatory for military service. Hmm. Uh, guess who flunked the IQ test, according to the military? Right, right. Yeah, black people, right? Right, Because right, yeah. they, were, they, weren't, they weren't IQ tests. They were cultural and, and right. uh, class questions that were being asked. And to that end, there was a statement made by military leaders that said black people are too stupid to be around armament. Mm -hmm. And so black people were allowed to register for the military, but they were not going to be given military training. Mm -hmm. Well, people go, what else do you do? Well, you know, you have to be in the military, I suppose, but there's lots of labor in the military. And so they were assigned to something called SOS Group, Service of Supply where they were going to sell the, uh, set up camps, work in the kitchens and the mess hall, dig latrines, you know, do all the things that military people you know, have to do. They weren't supposed to be uh, holding weapons and, and or uh, have military service, correct? Yeah. However, some people, again, jump to something that they've seen online. They say, well, I read that you know, a black regiment, the 369th Infantry, received more medals during World War One than any other U.S. unit. True, but they weren't U.S. medals. They were French medals. French medals. Yep. Because the first people on the ground over in, in France were going to be these SOS groups. Right. And the French, who are getting their butts handed to them, basically say we don't need people to dig latrines we need people to go shoot some germans right right and if we give you weapons you know would you go fight and the black soldiers well yeah that's sort of why we were are in the military we just weren't given the opportunity right and so the first americans who saw active duty the people the americans who served the longest in the front lines which wasn't all that long compared to europe were african americans and because of their length of service and their uh, importance right at the front, they received all of these accolades mm-hmm. right, and, from and, the French. Right. And they started seeing themselves, the French looked, you know, started seeing themselves not as, as equals, but they started seeing yeah. like, wait, wait a minute. They, this concept of being deemed an equal, it became contagious. What, what an imaginary, what an, uh, uh, an amazing thought process that being treated as an equal yeah would be like, hey, yeah. I kind of like this, <laughs> you know? So this is where I like to insert, though, to my class. I always usually stop and go, wait, wait, French people aren't racist? Oh, no, yes, they they are. But... Right? I mean, it's, it's, you have to remember that it's wartime. It has yes. not, it, it's not just because they're French, because right. it's wartime. Right. Because France had colonies, France had slave ships, France used the Middle Passage. Right. 
France has been brutal in, in many cases, so it's not just because they're French, mm-hmm. but compared to um, what was going on in the United States with things like this IQ test and Jim Crow, as we just covered, right, it shouldn't surprise too many people that a fairly uh, sizable number of black men didn't return home from the war. They stayed in France. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was because of better opportunities, not that there wasn't issues and problems over there. Right. right. Now to the latter part of your question is what did this mean for the process? Was that because they had seen that there were people who appeared white that could see and treat them differently upon those who did return, there was an increased push for things like the anti-lynching law that was put up again and again and again and never passed, right, officially. Right. Uh, there was going to be uh, a lot of interest in putting the best foot forward, as it were, which eventually people are going to call the Harlem Renaissance right. uh, or the New Negro Movement, right? And there are signs that there were places that were not going to adhere as rigidly to the types of segregation that preceded World War One, but only if it was of interest, shall we say. Right. Right. So to take an easy example, what's the most popular music for the 1920s? Jazz. Yeah, jazz. And jazz actually saw a big boon in in, in um, French. Yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. But for our purposes France. in the United yes. States, you found people that were interested, intrigued, infatuated, um, I don't know, in love with the exotic, whatever it is. doesn't really mean they didn't have their own racist tendencies, but they were curious. You know, the fun stuff was happening on the other side of the railroad tracks, as it were, right? Right. And so you began to see more of this, not integration, but willingness of white people to maybe not just peek over the fence, but sometimes, you know, go through the fence and and engage and involve uh, and be seen in areas where prior to the Great War, there were two separate societies much more rigidly. Right. And with those type of inroads, you begin to build again more towards, um, you know, the W.B. Du Bois and, you know, building up of the uh, black intellectual community and the effort to present blacks as citizens as opposed to labor. Right. Right. All right. So we are. We are now transitioning out of world war one all right at this time i want to take a (laughs) i want to take a break and i want to do our last part portion of the podcast and uh focusing on the world war one the civil rights movement um that transferred and then that would lead us all the way into modern day political um concepts so uh, let's go ahead at this point, take a quick break. And I want to thank everybody who's li- been listening for this par- portion, part, part two of the Black History Podcast. And um, what we're going to do is, again, we're going to move on to 
part two. So stick around. And if you not, if you can, please share this podcast. Uh, leave commentary if you're on Apple. And um, we're going to transition out. So um, this ends this portion of part two of the Black History Podcast.